Okay, beloved, we're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes 10. Uh, I can only get as far as verses 8 through 11, so there you go. That's what we're going to look at. (laughs) They're complicated verses, actually, so that's why. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Uh, The preacher... Ecclesiastes, obviously he often reflects on uh, his, his observations in, in life, and in his study of the people around him, he, he recognizes the fact that in many cases, uh, things are upside down. Okay, we've seen that. Things are upside down. Verse 6, we go back and look at verse 6. He says, folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place, reminding us that, that we oftentimes um, see the most foolish, foolish individuals achieve uh, the highest places or highest offices, while those whose wisdom and skill w- would certainly seem to make them the most fit for office, they never reach such heights. So that's an upside-down matter. In verse 7, he observed slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And again, in the ancient world, um, horses were a sign of royalty. Not just anyone rode around on a horse. It wasn't the common mode of travel in that day. Um, Donkeys were. So uh, he sees here that while those who have knowledge and discernment to actually reign are, are walking around on the ground like slaves. And those who have no business on signs of royalty are, are riding along. They don't belong there. It's another thing that's upside down. You know, working hard, um, investing wisely, staying up late and studying um, does not always guarantee success. Nevertheless, uh, your next door neighbor is a fool who's lazy and, you know, he inherits a million dollars and he's viewed as the one who should be honored and, you know, you never receive such honor. I mean, it's that type of thing. That's kind of the way life is. These are kind of the observations of which um, Solomon, who we believe to be Coleth here, is uh, instructing us with. This is the reality of life and so on. So... We're given instruction on how wisdom responds to an angry ruler. You know, hold down your position. Don't respond with anger. That's wise. The fool, on the other hand, will always do just the opposite. So here we are in the middle of, of, of what we would refer to as uh, the wisdom for skillful living. Wisdom for skillful living. Wilf, skill for living life, and that is, of course, to... Uh, apply God's word to the concrete realities of life in contrast to the fool who does not. 
the fool may reject the word, the fool may know the word, or simply refuse um, to apply the word um, to uh, you know, the concrete situations of life. So this is the contrast that's being drawn for us, this contrast between the fool and between the wise, between folly um, and the road uh, of wisdom. You know, uh, that means that uh, folly is really unskilled living. And typically, it all has to do with relationships. You know, we see folly show up um, by way of strife. You have strife in marriage. You have strife in families. You'll see the fool in his folly cause strife uh, even within the body of Jesus Christ. It is unskilled living, you know. So the, the, the unskilled living of the fool trickles down to all his relationships. And we're kind of seeing that um, unfold for us through these sayings. Now here, we happen to be in the middle of a collection of, of proverbial sayings. Each one can stand on its own, right? There is no absolute theme um, running through it, but together it draws a portrait of the fool. Together, these draw a portrait of what folly looks like. So, as we study wisdom literature, um, oftentimes when we read Proverbs, um, we'll sit back and we'll see ourselves as the wise line. Right? And the fool line will think of the one who's not here and we wish they were here listening to this. You ever thought that? Boy, if only so-and-so could be here. But with wisdom literature, we need to humble ourselves and realize uh, that we are not the personification of wisdom. Our Lord Jesus Christ is. We have the word, and there's going to be certain portions of Scripture that really apply to us um, uh, as regards our foolishness. And this is a sanctifying reality of the word. So rather than seeing someone else in this picture, we need to see ourselves in the picture if it fits. Amen? For instance, Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. (laughs) And again, we see how important the body of Christ is. We're privileged to to be able to have one another, to help hone one another. We sit under the word together, and there's wisdom throughout God's people, so we don't want to isolate ourselves. That would be folly. Proverbs 18, verse 1, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You know, I read of a story this week of a man who went to see a counselor, and in the very first meeting, he said this, I'm not sure why I'm here. I'm a pretty smart guy. Okay, so he's very self-satisfied, number one. And, you know, I've been thinking about this, that is his issue, for 10 years, and I cannot figure it out. To which the counselor replied, yes, but you've only thought about it from one perspective, yours. Such is the fool. And that's often our problem, Um, regardless of how clearly we may see something, um, we can only see it from, from my world perspective. Therefore, we need God's word and we need one another and we mustn't isolate ourselves so as to glean the most wisdom we can so that we don't end up down the road of folly, amen? And that includes all of us, myself especially included. So here then we're in this middle, the middle of this collection of proverbial sayings that is sketching for us the portrait of the fool. And we see that in verses uh, 8 through 15 
uh, verse 18 and 19. And also we'll see next time the contrast between foolish and wise rulers, verses 16, 17, and 20. But as I said, we're not going to make it past verse 11 this morning. So let's look at that. It's a very difficult section. Verses 8 and 9 are very difficult to interpret. And just let me say at the outset here, um, some scholars, some interpreters, some commentators take these sayings to mean that life is simply dangerous. Okay, and, and since the world is not a safe place, if we're wise, we will watch out for danger. Okay? And on the surface, certainly. I mean, that's true. We'd all agree with that. But it's viewed here by some as a person who's simply engaged in his occupation who can be accidentally injured on the job. An example would be, you know, a construction worker digs a pit, and then turns around and accidentally falls into the pit. The Holman Standard Bible, great translation, interprets it like this. The one who digs a pit may fall into it. The one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. You know, that is, uh, as you move on and read it, you know, quarrying stones and splitting trees, those are good enterprises, those are good livings. And the interpretation in this section would be that for some, while you work, things may go wrong, right? You dig a pit, you forget about it, you go out in your yard at night, it's dark, you forgot you dug it, you fall into the pit. Be careful. Or if you're out pulling down an old stone stone wall, be careful because snakes like to hide in walls, and as you're breaking through, you might be bitten. A tree chopper chops a tree, turn around, the tree falls the wrong way, and you're crushed. Things like that. Or you're working in a stone quarry, and you move a stone, and it starts rolling your way, and you become a rolling stone. Right? You roll with the stone. Thank you for being awake. So the wisdom would be here, not that these are bad enterprises, not that these are bad things, but accidents happen. When you're supposed to be doing what you're to be doing, accidents happen. You know, driving your car is a great thing, but you could be in a car accident. That, that's how this is interpreted. If the axe head flies off while you're swinging it, you know, it might hit someone in the head, it might crush their skull, and so on. So the answer isn't, you know, I'm not going to cut any more trees. The point is, of this illustration, that, that life is full of, uh, of anomalies and, and surprises as we go about ordinary life. That's how some, if you, if you want to interpret it like that, you can. You're in some pretty good company, but I think you'll be in better company as, as we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And I don't think that that view seems to fit with the context of the portrait of a fool that is being drawn for us. Here what we see is that calamity overtakes a fool. Okay? So this more likely, I believe, describes a class of the foolish whose evil actions against their neighbor brings disaster upon their head. You know, you reap what you sow. So thinking, the fool that is, thinking that he will prosper in hurting his neighbor, 
his evil act eventually overcomes him. So I don't think it's speaking about an accident here as much as it's speaking about poetic justice, or we would call it divine, sovereign, providential justice. You know, God may not immediately judge the fool, but all you have to do, the fool, just wait. Just wait. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Wisdom understands that. Foolishness disregards that. That's what I think is before us. Charles Bridges comments on this little section of Ecclesiastes, and he says this, quote, These four pithy illustrations obviously point to one and the same end. Evil shall fall upon the heads of its own authors, end quote. So let's look at it. Verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. So now here, the picture here, so here's the metaphor. It's that of a trapper, right? He, he, he's out wanting to trap an animal, so he digs a pit, and he puts some br- light brush over the top of it. You know, remember on Gilligan's Island when they used to do that, right? And put a little brush on top, throw some dirt on top, and uh, you, you, you'll string bait over maybe around a limb of a tree, over the pit, the animal comes, jumps up for the bait, falls in the pit, trapped. So the metaphor is depicting someone here who sets out intending to set a trap for someone. Digging a pit became a proverbial saying in the ancient world for snaring a trap, snaring someone in a trap, snaring someone in your trap, set for them meaning to do them harm, either physically or in an attempt to to ruin their reputation. That's what I think is here. It's just laying a trap. It's a deliberate plot being set to hurt another, to ruin another, to, to catch them in a snare. It's deliberately set up to hurt one's neighbor. For instance, in Psalm 7, verse 14, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Any man who devises wicked schemes against another, here's the principle, eventually it befalls them. Comes back on their own head. So the trap that that he or she sets for others will be the downfall of that individual. That's that's what's in view, I think, more than just the dangers of everyday living. Psalm 9, verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. Notice this. In the net that they hid their own, in the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. So they, they hide in that, their foot gets caught in it. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known, he's executed judgment, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Makes more sense. Now the classic scenario of this principle in the Bible, who do you think of? Haman. Haman sets a plot against Mordecai 
So he builds the gallows for Mordecai to be hanged upon, and then he himself is hanged, right? Esther 7, verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. That's really reaping what you sow. So living a life, setting traps for others, you yourself, the fool. This is your folly. You will fall into your own trap, into this trap. So although, again, the idea that life is sometimes dangerous, it's certainly true. No doubt very true. It just doesn't seem to fit the immediate context. So if you think I'm wrong, you can point it out later. But you have some proving to do because I've read the best commentators and I just have at it. (laughs) All right, uh, verse 8b. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, this wall, it would be a stone hedge, a wall that set boundaries and marked out properties. So, for instance, in this day, when a man would build a vineyard, he would send up a stone hedge on his property line. This is my vineyard. So to break through the wall or go over the wall, you, you are uh, that's illegal trespass. So here... A man who wants to sneak into his neighbor's vineyard, he wants to stay far away from the the gates of entry. So the picture is that he begins to break through this hedge. He breaks breaks through this property line. And uh, while he's rifling through it, while he's chiseling stones and pulling out stones, he puts his hand in, and there's a serpent. Serpents like to hide in rock walls, stone walls, and he's bitten, and the idea is that of a poisonous snake. He's breaking walls. He's breaking barriers. He's not honoring lines of property, and he's bit. Strikes him. He disregards boundary. He has no respect whatsoever. This is the fool who disregards his neighbor's property line. So in transgressing the line, he's struck. That's the fool. You know, anyone who, who refuses to respect boundaries in, in, Jewish, in jurisdictions in Scripture, this serves as a metaphor for all of us, for everyone. You think about walls that God has established in uh, marriage, family, the church, the state. Three institutions of God. Marriage, the state, and the church. And when people want to try to break through those jurisdictions, those walls, uh, calamity is going to befall them eventually. That would be an applicable point. Next in verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. Okay, this is whether you're taking it from the quarry, right? There's a pile there, um, or you dig them out yourself. Um, Oftentimes... Um, large stones were used as land markers in the ancient world. So if you start, you know, trying to move these things out of position and remove it from its place, whether it's set a boundary or a marker, whatever, uh, what may happen is it may roll upon you. This is a big stone, a larger stone. It's in view. Proverbs 26, verse 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
So that's the idea there. Landmarker, you take it. Maybe there's a pile of stones there. Uh, maybe you're lifting and taking them. It's not yours, and you put your back out, whatever. You know. And then verse 9b. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. Now, obviously, splitting wood, literally splitting wood can be dangerous. You know, you can get a chip in your eye, a splinter, uh, and so on. But, but again, um, there appears to be something more, than he, more that's here than just a hazardous profession. So in digging around and studying this, uh, the idea of splitting wood here is that of causing division. Something that is to be by nature bound together, wood bound together naturally, someone attempts to divide. That's the idea. So splitting wood that is bound together by nature, it could be family, it could be, say, the church, the community of faith. Someone comes along and tries to divide. This this is what a, a, a good group of interpreters believe this to mean as well as the other ones that I've laid out for you. For instance, Charles Bridges, uh, he says, he talks about the secret conspiracy against the established order of things. Okay? John Gill writes this in, in this section. Quote, All such persons who are, are, who are for removing the boundaries of commonwealth and communities and for changing laws and altering constitutions... And he that cleaves wood, sowing discord among brethren, he that makes divisions in families, neighborhoods, kingdoms, and churches, shall be endangered thereby of cutting himself. So the idea here is that the goal of the fool is to separate those who are in unity. And again, this is all painting the portrait of a fool. More than just, hey, be careful when you're chipping down a tree. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Are you with me? For instance, Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man, what does he do? He spreads strife, and a whisper separates close friends. So a whisper causes true, true friends to divide. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's an it's a evil pursuit. We've had someone try to do that here before. The divider will himself here be in danger as the the divider who causes strife, strife will actually eventually catch up with him. So, unable to remain in in unity because of a a divider here uh, is what's in view. He sows discord. You know, those kind of people are super irritating. They sow discord. They they, they whisper. They get someone over in this corner and then someone over in this corner. And then the principle here is that division will cause division to come upon him who causes division. That which is to be naturally bound together, he he tries to divide. So the the fool then who who seeks to, to dig a pit... For his neighbor will eventually fall into it. He who wants to violate boundaries that are set up will become struck by a poisonous serpent. And landmarkers, removing them, they may roll upon you and crush you. So here, the fool who seeks to divide 
divide that which by nature should be one, splitting relationships, will, as all fools are, will actually be, be split himself. He'll bring calamity upon himself. So he goes on, there's a much wiser and safer way to live life. Verse 10, we see a metaphor uh, drawn from the, from the blacksmith. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, by wis- but wisdom helps one to succeed. Charles Riken in this section, in his commentary, he said this. He goes, quote, when the Bible uses images like this, we need to slow down to understand them. Puzzling over them like riddles instead of skimming over them like stories. So in a section of scripture like this, you've got to slow down. So there's wisdom here compared to a sharpened blade, right? It takes a lot more strength to try to chop a tree down with a dull axe than it does a sharp edge. So you want to sharpen the machete, go out to your little garden shack and sharpen your machete before you start hacking through the weeds. And Ecclesiastes is filled with with wisdom for sharpening us. So this is the excellency of wisdom to be sharpened by her, the excellency of wisdom that is profitable for a man's actions. So wisdom puts a man in the right way, doing things, directing him to do things with those who are around him to also carry out those actions that will benefit them and, and not just himself. So this, this is wisdom. This is the sharpening of the axe is kind of the idea here. It's not only good for you, but it's good for others around you. And then in verse 11, this is a good one. This was hard. You had to kind of dig around for this. He says, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. So we've already seen the folly of the fool laid out and trying to trap others, uh, violating boundaries, has no respect for anybody but himself. He's the fool. So in contrast to that, you want to sharpen the edge. That's wise compared to this kind of folly. So the serpent bites, uh, you know, once a snake is charmed, the idea is you can keep it under control. If it's not charmed, it may strike you. Now, you're all familiar with that practice in the East. You know, you get the little, little Hindu guy with his little hat, head covering, sitting there Indian style, of course, because he's Indian. And he's playing his little flute, and the little cobra comes up out of the basket type of thing, and he's doing this little dance, you know. And, and, and he's charming the snake. So here, this serpent, again, is probably being used metaphorically. And this is one who will deceive you. This is the idea of one who will betray you. This is like the Judas snake. He may pose as a friend. And when you least expect it, he may strike and bite like a serpent. Now, uh, the King James, the old King James, translates verse 11 like this. Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment. And a babbler is no better. 
Again, a comment from John Gill. As a serpent will bite without enchantment, so too a babbler is no better. A whisperer, a backbiter, a busy tattling body that goes from house to house and in a private manner speaks evil of civil governments, of ministers of the word, and of other persons, and in a secret way defames men and detracts from their characters. Such a one is like a venomous viper, a poisonous serpent or adder, and there's no more guarding against him than against such a creature that bites secretly. End quote. Unfortunately, even within the church, you find this. You'll find people who speak with smooth words and they pose as a friend, but they'll bite you like a serpent, no matter how charming you are towards them. Come and tell you how great you are, how great the ministry is. And to preachers, they'll say, man, you're the best preacher I've ever heard. Said, you're a liar. And they turn around and bite. This kind of sorrow is the sorrow that King David experienced with who he thought was a close friend, Ahithophel. Ahithophel. His counselor, remember? Ahithophel, who was David's counselor and personal friend, left David and joined with David's son, Absalom, who was trying to overtake the kingdom. Remember that? A terrible, wicked time. I mean, it it is a disgusting scene in the Bible. And what Absalom did to his father, sleeping with all his concubines in front of Israel. And in Psalm 55, David pours out his heart. So you think of this adder who's being charmed. It's not charmed. It will, you know, strike you. David said this in Psalm 55, 12, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng together. Verse 21, His speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Psalm 41.9, David again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And then, of course, that, that was prophetic scripture as regards the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in John 13.18, I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Pretty striking. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. No advantage. So we live in an ordered creation, amen, as regards wisdom 
Wisdom and understanding are good for us. God has ordered it this way. He provides us all this wisdom literature. You know, obviously Jesus, the Christ, is wisdom personified. We have his word. So we learn from this that naturally there's consequences in life to the good and the bad. There's consequences for the wise and there's consequences for the fool. Wisdom and folly both reveal themselves in time. So in his mercy, the Lord's mercy, he's given us his word. He's revealed it to us. He's given us eyes to see. I mean, we, we, we know the truth. I was struck by this again last night, and I was washing my truck, and two Mormons were walking down the street. And, uh, you know, they, see, they says, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And, you know, I was dumb enough to say, hey, you can dry my truck for me, because that's what they want. They want to do some deed for you to kind of open the door. And I should have said, you can change my, you know, my wheel bearings for me. They're starting to squeak. I should have done that, but... But, you know, a half hour later, you're listening, and he says, hey, do you know anybody who, who wants to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ? And I said, yeah, I know a lot of people. And I didn't tell him I was, you know, pastor or anything. He says, well, have you ever heard of the Book of Mormon? I said, well, I certainly have. I said, but, you know, I'm not into heresy. I'm into the Word of God. And, uh, <laughs> and then basically spent a half hour... Um, beginning in Revelation, and, or beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, I said, tell me, what, what's the gospel? You know, Jesus died on the cross recently. I said, well, you know, that's part of it. That's a message of salvation, but what's the gospel? I said, the gospel begins in Genesis. So we went through all these things, and, you know, they're, all they know is their rhetoric. And I'm speaking divine truth. And, real, and you, you know, I, you never walk away from that when you're done, like, boy, I guess I showed them. It's actually sorrow, in a sense, that you have been given truth, eyes to see the truth. We have the wisdom of Almighty God given to us in Christ Jesus. Amen? So this we've been given, divine wisdom, and as I said, personified in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the, the very wisdom of God in a human body who walked on this earth, never did anything of his own accord, but did everything as he was continually submitted to the Father by the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is how we have to see it. In many of those years, think about this. Here he was submitted to human parents. Mere human parents the one who created all things, the one whose wisdom personified. So he is the word. He's given us his word. And, you know, these kind of instructions, when we read wisdom literature instead, and I begin with myself, is not to sit here and read it or ponder in my chair and, and say, well, yeah, I am wise. And if only this person I know who would really get this, that'd be great. It's the wrong view, amen? It's the wrong view. So there's some, uh, we're out of time, so there's some, did we make it all the way? Yeah, verse 11, there you go. You can ponder that, meditate on that, you can go reread that yourselves, and uh, again, I think the portrait of a fool is what's being drawn, and, and his all kinds of different follies that are in view.
may we be wise, may we be cautious. Amen?